Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 151 for July 12th, 2009. Let's say you've decided to write the great American novel. Now, what tool should you use? Some authors swear by a box of number two pencils and a stack of legal pads. Others use Word or Open Office Writer. And then there's Simon Haynes. When Haynes set out to write the great American novel, he knew that it was going to be impossible. For one thing, he's Australian. Beyond that, he didn't like any of the available tools. But Simon had an edge. He's a programmer. So he wrote his own novel writing program. Or maybe it should be called a novel writing program. Well, anyway, then he did the unthinkable. He started giving it away to anybody who'd take it. I've never written a novel. I have thought about it. It's been said that inside every journalist is a novel, and that with any luck, that's exactly where it'll stay. I've read a lot of novels, and I'm attentive enough to know that a well-crafted novel depends on paying a lot of attention to detail. Your hero can't very well be short, red-haired, and Swedish in one chapter and suddenly turn into a tall, bald Ukrainian five chapters later. At least he can't, unless that change is somehow an important plot element. Kurt Vonnegut wrote a lot of things that could never have possibly happened, but it seemed to work out okay for him. You are not Kurt Vonnegut, though. Neither am I. If either of us was, we'd be dead now. Besides, readers generally depend on consistency. If Martha suddenly becomes Marta or Marcia, you're going to have an unhappy reader. So the program Haynes created does more than just give you a place to type exposition and dialogue. Integrated into the application are features that allow you to create a character's backstory, retain a description, track all the characters in a book and in a given scene. If Joey's in Venezuela, you don't want him to suddenly stop by at the hero's Paris apartment for tea one evening. So yes, it's sort of a word processor, except that it doesn't have mail merge, tables outlining, math formula editing, and all the other features that mean absolutely nothing to somebody who's writing a novel. And it won't write the novel for you. It doesn't come up with ideas. It won't suggest any really cool plot twists. What it will do is help you keep track of your work so that you can concentrate on character development and the plot. It's called Y-Writer, by the way. And within about two minutes of installing Y-Writer, I understood how useful this tool could be to an aspiring writer, or even an experienced writer, and why. The benefits are a combination of features that are present and features that are absent. The author shouldn't be concerned with the typeface, the style of type, bold, italics, and all that other formatting stuff. So none of that is present in the program. You can't get sidetracked making your text look pretty. Haynes is the author of the Hal Space Jock comedy series, and I have to admit that I've never heard of that series. It's published by Fremantle Press and distributed by Penguin Australia. Haynes even offers a free copy of his first book on his website, and you'll find a link to that website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. That's www.techbiter.com. Haynes says, and I quote, I really struggled with my first novel because I wrote slabs of text into a big word processor file, and I just couldn't make sense of the whole thing at once. No real overview, no easy jumping from scene to scene, nothing. 
So then he tried saving each chapter as an individual file, but that made moving scenes between files a nuisance, and having the novel broken up into 32 files was distracting. Then he went to extremes. He tried saving each scene of each chapter as a file. The book turned into more than 200 files, and organization was a challenge. As a programmer, he says, I'm used to dealing with projects broken into source files and modules. I never lose track of my code. I decided to apply the same working method to my novels, and Y-Writer was the result. So the program concentrates on scenes instead of chapters. A chapter may have just one scene or many. This is clever because it allows the writer to keep one small segment of the book in mind while working on it, but then provides a structure for linking all of those pieces together into a coherent whole. I'll bet you know somebody who has spent all day working on something only to have the computer crash half an hour before quitting time. Yes, that person should have saved the work several times during the day, but for some reason or another, didn't. Now the entire day's work is lost. This won't happen with YWriter, because YWriter does automatic backups of your work as you're writing, and you can't exit the program without saving. It's automatic. It even creates automatic zip files of the entire project by date. So you can go back to a previous version if you decide your last three days' worth of work were seriously off course. You can't expect a publisher to have YWriter installed, so when the book or any section of it is complete, you can export it to RTF, that's the standard word processor exchange format, or even to HTML. Once you've exported to either of those file types, you can open it in Word or OpenOffice Writer and start playing with the heads, the subheads, and bold and italics and all that stuff. Bottom line, five cats for YWriter. It's free, and it's a great program. Using Word to write a novel is a challenge because the spelling checker is on and reminding you of misspelled words when you should be concentrating on the plot. Even worse, there's an urge to apply formatting as you go, so clear your mind if you're writing a novel. Use YWriter instead. For more information, check the YWriter website. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Fulfilling the Internet's Unfulfilled Promise <laughs> That's how Lawrence Zhang, a product analyst for Opera Software, describes Opera Unite. What that statement lacks in modesty, it makes up in excitement. Unite is the next version of the Opera browser, and the browser incorporates file sharing, a chat service, photo and audio sharing, and even a web server inside the browser. As much as I like the goals set for Unite, I'm a bit concerned by some of the security implications. To use the server part of Unite, you'll need to be running Opera, but it doesn't matter which browser others are running when they connect to your computer. The technology, in fact, isn't exactly new, but including the technology in a browser is a bit of a breakthrough. I installed Opera Unite on my notebook computer running Windows 7 Release Candidate 1. Opera the company, that is, not the browser, becomes sort of an operator. When you start Opera Unite on your computer, it connects to unite.opera.com, and it identifies your computer. When your friends want to view files on your computer or leave a message for you on your computer's desktop, they use a URL that names your computer, names the service that they want to use, but connects through Opera Unite. What people who connect to your computer see will depend on how you've set Unite up. 
If you're sharing files, for example, you can set it up so no one will see anything unless they have a username and password. Or you can set it up so that anyone can see files on your computer but cannot write to them. Opera gives developers a chance to develop applications for Unite. So far, the services available are file sharing, Fridge. Fridge is kind of like a magnet on your refrigerator. Media player, photo sharing, the lounge, a chat area, and the web server. They're all installed by default when you install version 10 of the browser. They don't start functioning, though, until you create an Opera Unite account and turn them on individually. So you get to pick what you want to use. Test versions are available right now for Windows, Mac, and Linux machines. Opera plans to expand coverage to mobile phones and probably some other devices. Eng says that these initial applications are what he calls just simple demos that replicate existing services and online functionality. Unite offers developers an opportunity to envision and then create new ways for people to interact online. When you try to connect to a computer running Opera Unite, don't expect success every time. This is beta software, after all. It appears that more than the expected number of people have downloaded Unite, and the Opera server is sometimes just a bit overloaded. Sometimes when I tried to use it in test mode, I'd get a screen telling me that everything was busy. But after a few minutes, I was usually able to obtain a connection, and as expected, I was asked for a password because I set it up with password protection. In the file sharing mode, after providing the appropriate password, I'm allowed to see the single shared directory on the notebook computer. That directory had several subdirectories. You'll find pictures of all this on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Once I got there, I could download any file to my computer, but I can't change any file on the notebook computer. I can't delete a file. I can't add a file. That's intentional. Eng says that when the folks at Opera first talked about media applications created for Opera Unite, one idea was just a simple music player. I would play a song on my computer, and my friends would then hear the same song on their machines. <laughs> that would be kind of a big yawn, as far as I'm concerned, and that led them to question whether anyone would find that sufficiently worthwhile to use. And probably there would be legal questions involved, too, dealing with the Recording Industry Association of America. Eng then had an idea for what he calls a virtual jukebox. What if he and some of his friends each selected ten tracks from their individual collections, put the list in a queue, and then let the jukebox play the selections in random from the various computers? I suspect some users will find this to be worthwhile, amusing, and maybe amazing. It's still not something that really appeals to me. So, Fridge. Well, that's yeah, kind of a silly application, but it opens the door to new ways to work collaboratively. On my desktop, connected through Opera Unite to the notebook, I can create a short note and stick it to the fridge. On the notebook computer, I can see the contents of any note stuck on my fridge and the email address of the writer. Others who are connected to my machine can see the notes, but they can't see the writer's email address. And here's another possibility. Multiplayer games. These could range from an online game of chess or some other two-player game, all the way up to large role-playing games. Or for more practical-minded folks, it could be used to allow people to work collaboratively on documents without having to host them on a publicly accessible server. Eng says it would be possible to create a system that would allow multiple users to make changes simultaneously on a document. It's an interesting idea, and it's one that deserves serious consideration.
Once again, a small company in Norway proves just how innovative it can be. But this is all still clearly beta stuff. Simply closing Opera 10 routinely generates a crash error message. It's not really a crash, but Opera just somehow detects being closed as crashing. These kinds of problems will, of course, be solved in the near future and in the release code. But watch out for them if you download and test the beta version. Registry Mechanic, as the name implies, is a tool that is used to clean, repair, and compact the Windows registry. It has a decent reputation and no small number of people who recommend it, but in part, Registry Mechanic was responsible for turning one of my computers into a temporary doorstop. It's all better now that I've reinstalled the operating system and restored both the applications and the data, but this is a good reminder that even well-recommended tools can't always save the day. A couple of facts are probably worth mentioning here. First, the operating system was already showing signs of distress before I used Registry Mechanic. And second, the Windows Registry represents what is essentially a single point of failure. In other words, I can't blame System Mechanic entirely for causing the problem, only for making it worse than it already was. So the moral of the story, and I'm putting the moral before the story, is never to assume that a magic bullet will fix a computer problem and always have a full, complete, and verified backup ready to save the day. I had been experiencing near lockup conditions when I right-clicked a file or folder in the Windows Explorer. That suggested there was a problem with the context menu entries. Using a tool that can selectively enable and disable items in the context menu, I was unable to find one or any combination that was causing the problem. Knowing that reinstalling Windows would probably be the solution, I turned to Registry Mechanic as a final attempt to avoid the process. I expected that Registry Mechanic would solve the problem, and I figured that was unlikely, or that it would simply leave things pretty much as they were. My first step was to back up the registry. Although I assumed Registry Mechanic wouldn't make the situation worse, I did intend to have some safeguards in place. Registry Mechanic told me that it found an astounding 387 errors in the registry. As I looked at the list, I concluded that most of what it called errors were trivial and that they had nothing to do with the problem at hand. For reasons beyond my understanding, it seems that most protective tools, like registry mechanic or other registry cleaners, antivirus applications, anti-spyware applications, and the like, all do their best to simply frighten people with needless warnings. I guess this, they think, makes people believe that these applications are on the job and doing what they're supposed to do. But often the warnings are simply needless. Well, I told Registry Mechanic to go ahead and proceed with its changes, and it reported that it had fixed all 387 problems. It then offered to compact the registry. The 76-megabyte registry was wasting all of 1.5 megabytes, but I allowed that process to continue. Everything appeared to terminate normally, and Registry Mechanic said that it needed to restart the computer. And that's when the problem started. The computer booted, and I was able to log in as normal, but the printer wouldn't function. As I tried to fix that problem, other problems arose. Eventually, most of the peripheral devices simply stopped working. And to make it worse, the context menu problem was still there. 
So I did what I should have done previously. I reinstalled Windows, reinstalled the applications, and restored the data from backup. So it's worth reiterating that I do not hold registry mechanics solely responsible for the problem. But I do consider it to be an unindicted co-conspirator, and I have not reinstalled it. In short circuits, Google finally made it official this week. There have been rumors for the better part of a year that Google would release its own operating system. The company now admits that it is working on just such a product, and I suspect that this has not been accepted with equanimity in Redmond. Microsoft knows what to fear, and what to fear is not Apple. Apple's hardware and operating system is demonstrably different from Microsoft's. Some would say better. I might say better, but only if I would be allowed to qualify the statement. Google's operating system won't necessarily be better, but it sure sounds like Linux. The Chrome operating system, named in conjunction with Google's browser, will be targeted to netbook computers, at least at first. Netbooks are those inexpensive small machines that seem to be showing up just about everywhere these days. Google plans to make the Chrome OS available in the second half of 2010. Will it be Linux? Well, Google developed Android, an operating system for mobile phones, and some netbook manufacturers are using it. So it's hard to tell. And they are talking about the open source community. So Linux, some variant of Linux, at this point, who knows? Google's view of the future looks to me a lot like the past. Applications would be delivered via the Internet and would replace software on the desktop. The irony of all this is that desktop computers became so popular because they freed users from the tyranny of centralized control and centralized applications. But Google sees a future in which applications will run inside a web browser. Today, Microsoft has about a 90% share on the desktop and at least a 75% share when it comes to standard office applications, word processing, spreadsheets, and such. It's going to be an uphill battle for Google, but the company has the resources, both in money and personnel, to wage an effective campaign. So it's going to be an interesting view. Google's online applications are already being used by at least 2 million companies. But the companies that are using these applications are primarily small businesses, companies large enough to have a corporate IT staff or a corporate legal staff have so far stayed away from computing in the cloud. According to the Google blog, and I quote, Google Chrome OS is a new product separate from Android. Android was designed from the beginning to work across a variety of devices, from phones to set-top boxes to netbooks. Google Chrome OS is being created for people who spend most of their time on the web and is being designed to power computers ranging from small netbooks to full-size desktop systems. While there are areas where Google Chrome OS and Android overlap, we believe the choice will drive innovation for the benefit of everyone, including Google. Close quote. Is it really Linux? Well, there's certainly that call to the open-source community. And I quote again, We have a lot of work to do and we're definitely going to need a lot of help from the open-source community to accomplish this vision. Every time I buy a new hard drive, I do the math, and I'm always amazed. The first hard drive I bought was a 5-inch full-height drive that held 16 megabytes of data. It was in a separate box, the size of a shoebox, and a thick cable connected it to the computer. This would have been about 1983 or 1984, The hard drive cost around $1,200. 
$100 in those days had the buying power of nearly $300 today, so in today's dollars, that disk drive would have been valued at $3,600. A couple of weeks ago, I bought an extra 1.5 terabyte hard drive for the computer, and it cost $120. If I calculate the cost per megabyte using the unadjusted cost of $1,200, that 1984 drive had a cost of $75 per megabyte. Now consider the 1.5 terabyte drive for $120. Its cost per megabyte is eight thousandths of a cent. A more accurate number for the older drive would adjust the value to today's dollars. So instead of $75 per megabyte, it had a cost per megabyte that would be equivalent to $225 in today's dollars. Wow. How much space does one need anyway? I have a lot of audio files, both music files and the much larger production files needed to create TechBiter Worldwide. And I have a lot of photographs. When every single raw image consumes 10 megabytes, and images that have been adjusted in Photoshop can grow to 50 megabytes or more, images can take up a lot of space. So maybe I need a little more disk space than the average person, even though I don't do much with video at this point. And I mention that because video applications really need a lot of space. So currently, my desktop computer has a 200-gigabyte hard drive for Windows and the applications. A second 500-gigabyte hard drive holds most of the data in a 350-gigabyte partition. The remainder of the drive is used by Linux. The new drive is partitioned into two logical drives, 700-gigabytes and 800-gigabytes. Two external hard drives hold miscellaneous files. That would be a 250-gigabyte drive. And a hot backup of all current production files. That's a 500-gigabyte drive. Had somebody told me in 1984 that I would someday have a desktop computer with more than three terabytes of disk space available, I would have calmly explained that, first, my house would not be large enough to hold that much disk storage, second, I couldn't afford the electricity required to run that much storage, and third, I could never earn enough money to pay for that much storage if I lived to be a thousand years old. After all, in 1984, three terabytes of storage would have cost about $75 million. My desktop computer has, as you already know, three internal hard drives and two external drives. I know that the Carbonite backup service will not see the USB drives, but after I installed a third internal hard drive and partitioned it so that the drive would appear as drives M and N, Carbonite didn't see those drives either. When I asked Carbonite's tech support staff about the problem, the responses indicated that they didn't quite comprehend what the problem was. So I contacted Carbonite's CEO, David Friend, who probably is beginning to wish that he had never given me his email address. Friend said he'd see if he could get some information for me, and then suggested that probably nobody in customer support had ever encountered that. Oddly, several days later, Drive N appeared to Carbonite. Drive M still hasn't. Drive M is the primary partition on the disk. Drive N is the secondary partition. Why does it see N and not M? In any event, a week or so later now, Carbonite is still working to understand the problem. Drive M is still invisible. Drive N is being backed up normally. Aren't computers fun? Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.